I invite you to turn in Scripture to 2 Chronicles chapter 10, which will form our text this morning. Chronicles written by we don't know who, some say perhaps Ezra, but really we cannot be certain. But historically, it was one of the last books written in the Old Testament time. In fact, in the Jewish order of the books of the Old Testament, they have Chronicles last, and that helps understand something of our context. 2 Chronicles 10, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was king in, he was in Egypt, rather, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, and they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, Come to me again in three days. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be good to this people and please them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to the people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now... Whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king said, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered them harshly, and forsaking the counsel of the old men, King Rehoboam spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to it. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by God that the Lord might fulfill his word, which he spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Each of you to your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So all Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who had lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Hadoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, and the people of Israel stoned him to death with stones." And King Rehoboam quickly mounted his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. That concludes our text. 
in response to the preaching of the gospel, we'll sing from Psalm 111 about following in the way of wisdom and the blessing that brings. We'll sing the stanzas 1, 4, and 5. Church of Jesus Christ, people of God, imagine for a moment being part of God's people, being one of the Israelites living in Jerusalem about 150 years after the return from exile to Babylon. So from our perspective today, about 350 years before the coming of Christ. Imagine there you are in Jerusalem at that time period, the very name Babylon would still send shivers down your spine, for even though that empire had long since disappeared, in its heyday under King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian army had swept into your country, the country of Judah. It had defeated your king. It had burned God's temple down to the ground. It had smashed the wall of Jerusalem in large measure. And it had dragged away your king. It had dragged away all the rulers of the people, all the nobles, the merchants, everybody were dragged away into exile, leaving only the poorest of the land. That had happened from your perspective then about 200 years earlier, but it was such a momentous thing, that event is stamped on your memory as if you had personally lived through it because that exile changed everything for your people. The Israelites had gone from being a prosperous, independent nation under the rule of the house of David, a king from David's line, to a people now scattered and lost and subdued, almost without hope and afar away land. But lo and behold, about 70 years after that terrible destruction and exile, the Lord did something miraculous in His grace. He used another empire, the Persian Empire, to actually bring back some of the people of God. A remnant of Jews, perhaps 50,000, really only a fraction of those who had left, but still it was a beginning, a good start. And in those early days of the return, there had been a ruler from the royal line of David even, Zerubbabel. And with some prodding from the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the temple had been rebuilt on its original spot. So hope had returned in those earlier days, and and all the promises made to David about forever having a man sitting on the throne of Israel, those promises seemed to, to spring back to life. Even though the Jews were then under the rule of a Gentile empire, the Persians, yet God had made a new beginning. There was a a Jewish community back in Jerusalem. The temple was there again. It had been rebuilt, and the the son of David was ruling over the people. So things were looking up. But there you are, a hundred years later, still waiting for progress, sitting in your little corner of Jerusalem, wondering what happened, what happened to that 
promising beginning at the return from exile. From all that you can see, it has dwindled away. The temple was still there, yes, but Jews in other parts of of other countries like in Egypt and the half-Jews in Samaria to the north, they were busy building rival temples, and Jews were being drawn to worship in those temples as well. So this temple didn't, didn't have the appeal it once did. And what about the family of Zerubbabel, the line of David? What had happened to that line? Well, nobody knows. Over those hundred years, it had basically petered out to nothing. All those years after the return from exile, the Jews are still a a tiny, insignificant community living in a very small, insignificant province of the Persian Empire. The line of David was invisible, if not completely gone. How would God's promise come true, you wonder? The promise of a Messiah king. How would God's promise of restoring Israel ever come true? How would God's kingdom come when when things are so dismal as they are now? You're in the middle of that kind of situation. An Israelite community going nowhere fast, and there you are. You're weary. You're worried. You're waiting. You feel abandoned. You feel hopeless, questioning if it has all been for nothing, all that history, all of God's dealings with your ancestors, all of those promises of salvation and that promise of a glorious future, is it all for nothing, Lord? Oh, Lord, have you forgotten us completely? Has it, has it been for nothing? And the Lord's answer is, no, it has not been for nothing. You are not forgotten, and your life has purpose and meaning. And that's why the Lord, through His Spirit, inspired the writer of the Chronicles to write His book, His two books. These books show to the discouraged and disillusioned people of God of that time and the discouraged of our time that God, despite appearances, God is still busy, that His plan is still on track, that salvation and glory still are coming through the Messiah. This will happen even when a king and his people act foolishly, as we find happening in our text. So with all of that in mind, I bring you God's Word under this theme. Foolishness divides Israel, but God's wisdom prevails. We'll take a look at a foolish king and then a foolish people. So in our text here in chapter 10, we we meet the new king pretty quickly, Rehoboam, son of Solomon. And I think we, we have a handle on Solomon for the most part. Solomon is a famous king, famous among Christians and non Christians alike. Even non Christians will know him as one of the wealthiest kings of all time, one of the most successful kings who ever lived. But the thing which makes Solomon stand out more than anything else is his wisdom. We read in 1 Kings 3 that when Solomon responded to God's offer to ask him, ask him for anything that he wanted, then Solomon said, give your servant an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this great people of yours? And that 
that humble request to greatly please the Lord. And it pleased God so much that He gave Solomon not only riches and, and fame, but most importantly, a wise and discerning mind like no other person before him and even no other person after him. Solomon was the wisest man, at least outside of Christ himself, the wisest man who ever lived. Would you like to be wise like Solomon? We need to know what exactly is wisdom then. Well, Solomon himself told us in the book of Proverbs, which he wrote most of, he said there that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. That means it begins with revering God and wanting to please God. And God Himself described it this way in His dream, or in the dream that He gave to Solomon. He said, if you will walk in My ways, keeping My statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. He was describing the way of wisdom. It's to know God's will, God's commandments, and it's to obey them in day-to-day life. The opposite of that is to be a fool. Scripture calls that kind of person a fool. A fool is someone who despises wisdom and instruction, Proverbs says. So, brothers and sisters, you and I, we can also be wise like Solomon if we do what God instructed him to do, give our heart to God, study the Word of God, and commit ourselves to walking in the way of God. That is how you gain and grow in wisdom. So that was Father Solomon, and this seems to be the, the desire to walk in wisdom. That's exactly what is missing in our text from the lives of so many as Rehoboam ascends to the throne now, and it begins with the, the king himself, this lack of wisdom. Verse 1 says that Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. So the coronation was to take place in Shechem. Why not Jerusalem? That's where Rehoboam lived. That was the capital city. What was Shechem? Shechem was a city about 50 kilometers to the north in the tribal lands of Ephraim. Why go there? Well, the text doesn't say, but surely the royal house would be in charge of where the coronation would take place, right? So why not think of doing it in Jerusalem? Why not do what Solomon himself had done at the dedication of the temple? You remember that Solomon was the one to build the temple for the Lord, and he at that time assembled all of Israel to the city of Jerusalem, and they dedicated the temple, and he had a beautiful prayer at the temple, and the people were to, to make the temple the center of their lives. Why not have a coronation on the steps of the temple? Why not involve the priest to organize a service and, and pray for a blessing over the new king? Remember, the, the temple was the Lord's special chosen place to dwell on earth, a place where people could come and worship, have their sins forgiven. Surely, at the time of a, of a new king, the help and the blessing of Almighty God were needed and should be sought after, shouldn't they? And yet in our text, in chapter 10, there is not a word about seeking the Lord. 
or wanting to honor God or even a mention of God's promises to David and Solomon. In our whole text, Rehoboam says nothing about such things. He doesn't even mention the name of the Lord. He's coming to the throne of Israel, the Lord's people, and he doesn't even mention God's name. How different Solomon was. Solomon was appointed to the throne as a young man of probably in his early 20s. And when God approached him in a dream, Solomon was, was humble, didn't ask for riches, didn't ask for his enemies, didn't ask for long life. He prayed for wisdom. Young guy in his 20s prayed for wisdom. You know how old Rehoboam is when he becomes king? He's 41. And he's got no interest in praying. He's got no humility. All through this chapter, it's very clear. Rehoboam trusts in his own understanding. He thinks he's got it all under control. Shechem, that's a political choice. It was a respected city, an ancient city that had been involved in time past in the days of the judges, involved in choosing leaders. It was situated in the, the tribal territory of one of the largest tribes of the north. Let's give a nod to those northern tribes by having a coronation in Shechem. Let's keep, the, keep them kind of pacified. Politically thought to be smooth, religiously a foolhardy move. He left God out of the picture. But Rehoboam's foolishness is only beginning, for when he gets there, he is met with a delegation of disgruntled Israelites led by Jeroboam. Jeroboam had served in Father Solomon's workforce. He was actually the head of forced labor. We read, it, we read about that in 1 Kings 11. Solomon had undertaken many great building projects, and along the way he used forced labor to get the job done. And he would use mostly and, and primarily the forced uh, labor from the conquered Canaanite tribes that were still inside the land. But in time, he also conscripted Israelites to work in these, these labor gangs. And they felt, the Israelites, they felt unfairly treated. They felt it was heavy-handed. And so they come to the new king asking for relief. Lighten our burden, they ask. Not that they're unwilling to work for the king entirely, but lighten our burden. And when King Rehoboam hears the request, he's taken aback, he's surprised, so he asks for three days in order to return an answer to them. So here we see a king who's, who's out of touch with his people. He doesn't get it that they're upset by the forced labor. A, a king that was in touch with his people would know that. And in those three days, he seeks advice, counsel. We read about that in verse 6. Those two words, advice and counsel, they occur at least eight times in our passage. And at first, it sounds very encouraging that Rehoboam is seeking advice and counsel because that's what a wise king ought to do, right? You, you seek counsel. His father Solomon must have taught him this along the way. Solomon wrote about it in the book of Proverbs, chapter 15, "'Without counsel plans fail, but with many advisors they succeed.'" So Rehoboam starts out well by seeking the advice of the elders who had served his wise father, and those, 
those elders, they give him good advice, don't they? They say to him, if you will be good to this people and please them and speak good words to them, they will be your servants forever. These men, they understood God's will for king and people. They had read from the Scriptures how God first set up Moses and later the judges and then the kings. He had set them up as shepherds to care for and defend the people. That's what God calls the kings over Israel. Numbers 27 to Samuel 5, they are meant to be shepherds of God's people. What does a shepherd do? A shepherd cares for those under his charge, those sheep. The king was appointed to do good, to serve the people by administering God's law in justice and righteousness in exactly the same way that Solomon showed in that decision over the baby, right? The people understood by that decision. That was a demonstration of the wisdom God had given them. It was a wisdom to administer justice. And when a king administers justice, and he does that in a compassionate and totally fair way, then the people are blessed and they benefit from that. And the people would obey and rule and live under that rule peacefully and prosperously. So when the people come to King Rehoboam with their concern for being overworked, that was a legitimate concern. That was fair. The elders gave wise advice, totally in line with God's Word. But what, what did Rehoboam do? Verse 8, he abandoned the counsel of the old men. The author will repeat this a second time, verse 13. Rehoboam forsook their counsel. He forsook that wisdom. And that's a point that the struggling Jews of the chronicler's time needed to hear, and we need it just as much today. The point is this, the way forward in life Whatever the circumstance, the way forward in life is always, always, always to follow the Lord's way. In days of pride, like Rehoboam, or in days of depression, like the first readers of these books, we might be tempted to think that God's way is not the best way. It's not working or I just don't like it. That was more Rehoboam's approach in his pride. And so, I'm going to try my own thing. I'm going to go my own way. And one of the messages of the books of Chronicles is if we ignore God's instruction, when we set it aside or we ignore it or neglect it or spurn it, and we don't pay attention to His commands and to, to the purposes of God's commands expressed in the Scriptures, then, says Chronicles, we are fools who will pay the price for our foolishness. And Rehoboam paid a heavy price, didn't he? He listened to his childhood friends, his buddies. He listened to their rash advice. 
And he lost most of his kingdom in the process, ten tribes. What did they advise him to do? They advised him to act like a tyrant to the people instead of, as the older advisors had done, instead of a servant of the people. And everybody in authority needs to understand the difference. Elders, parents, husbands, teachers, employers, God's purpose in giving you, me, that authority is to serve the needs of the people beneath your charge. It's so that you can, with that authority, be a blessing for them, just as God Himself would do if He were in person doing it. Authority is never to be self-seeking, self-serving. Authority comes with responsibility. It's the responsibility to see to it that those under your charge are well cared for as they in turn willingly, voluntarily follow your wise instructions through which God gives them good things. That's the design. That's the wise design of God. Isn't that the design followed by King Jesus? How different Jesus was from Rehoboam, his ancestor. Jesus was not right after Solomon in the days of glory. No, Jesus was born into the lost and obscure line of David, and He was handed a forgotten throne. And yet, all His days, Jesus never undertook anything without consulting His Father in heaven in prayer. And Jesus took pains never to act the fool. He never made a foolish mistake He came to the throne to do His Father's will. He has said that multiple times. And His Father's will was that as King of His people, He would give His life for His people to set His own people free from slavery to sin and guilt. Jesus had, still has authority. He had and still has all authority in heaven and on earth, but how did He wield that authority? Certainly, there were times when He sharply commanded demons to vamoose from the people they had inhabited, and there were times when He boldly urged sinners to repent, and there were times with indignation He called corrupt leaders on the carpet, but He was also, Jesus was gentle and gracious with those who came to Him with their sins. And He was willing to forgive their sins. He was patient and loving toward His sheep that were straying. He never snuffed out a smoldering wick. He never broke a bruised reed, but He was always looking to help and heal the afflicted. And whip His own people like Rehoboam was threatening Jesus would never. He would never whip His own people. Instead, He took the blows of the whip on His own back, even the scorpion whips of the Romans, laced with lead and bone at the end, even being nailed to a cross to pay for your sin and mine. Isn't that the kind of authority Isn't that the kind of king we all need? 
Isn't that the kind of authority we all should emulate? Isn't that the kind of king we all can love? Indeed, our King Jesus is so filled with grace that He is patient even with foolish kings and with foolish people. For in this chapter, in this whole scene, it's not just the king who ignores God's law and God's design. It's also the ordinary people as well. On the one hand, they ask, what they ask of the king is reasonable, a lightening of the heavy load placed upon them by King Solomon. The fact that neither Rehoboam nor any of his advisors deny the charge indicates that it was true. Somewhere along the way, the forced labor that Solomon had set up, it had become heavier and heavier. It was oppressive. The people sought relief, and who could blame them? God had once released Israel from slavery into Egypt, and so it would not be right for the Israelites to become slave-like in their own land. And yet, the problem lies with their attitude. Their spirit in approaching Rehoboam has no more wisdom in it than the king's attitude. They come to him with a, with a demand and with a thinly veiled threat. Verse 4, your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. Do this, and we will serve you. The implication is clear. If you don't do what we demand, we will not serve you, O king. And that proved to be true. If we have to watch out, on the one hand, for a selfish and hurtful use of authority, we equally have to watch out for a selfish and defiant approach to submission where the attitude is, do it my way or else. Self-promoting ultimatums on either side, they simply do not fit God's design, do they? And the Israelites, they really aren't bluffing. No sooner does Rehoboam give their answer than they are ready with theirs. Verse 16, And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Each to your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, O David. So all Israel went to their tents. They took off. And to make the whole thing crystal clear to us, the writer adds a comment in verse 19, so Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. He, he stresses that. They were in rebellion against the house of David. Why is that significant? I mean, human kingdoms rise and fall by many different means over the course of time. Is rebellion against the house of David such a significant thing? Well, it's true, kingdoms rise and fall, but to only a single kingdom did God ever give a promise, a promise of an eternal kingship, and that was to King David. A quote from 2 Samuel 7 God speaking to David, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. 
When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And that promise was repeated a number of times to David and to David's sons thereafter. You can find it in the Psalms, Psalm 72. You can find it in Psalm 132. This was one of those those treasured promises of the Lord. Israel would always be ruled by a son from David's line. That's where God's kingdom would be reigned from and through. He would rule in the same spirit as David, with justice and compassion, with righteousness and kindness. The future Messiah would reign on David's throne. This is where Israel's salvation was to come from. So for the ten tribes to break away from the house of David and have and want nothing to do with the line of David, well, what was that? That was throwing away those promises. It was throwing away the future God it was promising. It was throwing away the kingdom of heaven. All in their foolish rebellion. Rebellion says our text, verse 19. That's a particular kind of foolishness, isn't it? The Hebrew word used there is a word used elsewhere for sin or transgression. So, the Holy Spirit is saying Israel was in a constant state of transgression against the house of David, against the house from which the Messiah would come. And if you're against the house of David, you're against the Lord because the Lord gave a promise to that house. There is such a thing as godly resistance to tyranny and oppression. Later in chapter 22 of 2 Chronicles, the author will tell us about the righteous uprising and revolt of Jehoiada the priest over against the wicked queen Athaliah who had usurped the throne. So there's a time for resistance. But here, the northern tribes, they take their just cause. They had a just point, but they take it too far. Instead of approaching Rehoboam with care and respect as was correct and with a love for the kingdom of God and a love for the house of David and a desire to be united with the house of David, they approach looking only to their current interests, lighten our load, And they lay down an ultimatum to that end, and they think no further. Instead of crying out to the Lord in their oppression to help against this injustice, instead of appealing to the priests and the prophets that were around, they use a very simple, blunt, political pressure tactic, and they have no bones breaking away from the house of David. It's a rebellious spirit. It's an ungodly rebellious spirit. It shows even more clearly when Rehoboam foolishly sends Hadoram to take charge of the people. He was the fellow in charge of the forced labor. Rehoboam sends him in, and he means to, to rally the people and to yet make forced laborers out of them. And the people turn, says our text, and they stone Hadoram. They didn't have to do that either. There's different ways to handle that. A rebellious people thinks nothing of murder, a flagrant violation of God's commandments. 
So a foolish king is met by a foolish people, and in the end, the whole kingdom of God, it splinters apart. And it's a hopeless mess. Well, not entirely hopeless, because there's something else at work here besides the foolishness of people. Verse 15 says, So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by God that the Lord might fulfill His word, which He spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam son of Nebat. That's all in 1 Kings 11, the prophecy. Rehoboam was certainly responsible for his foolish choices, as were the people of Israel, but God had His own reasons for allowing this development going back to Solomon's sin and Ahijah's prophecy. It's a reminder to the chroniclers, to the, to the, to the readers of the chronicles, and to us that despite the way circumstances look, even when God is not mentioned or talked about by the players and the power brokers, and when God doesn't seem to be in the picture at all, it's a reminder to us that God is in fact painting the picture. This was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord. He is sovereign. He is in control over king, over people. Whether they acknowledge it or not, He is in fact oh, in control over the entire world. It was Him who sent Nebuchadnezzar those hundreds of years ago. It was Him who sent the Persian Empire and stirred up Cyrus, the Persian king, to send a remnant back to Jerusalem. The church might look small and insignificant in the world. It might look powerless, but behind the scenes, the kingdom of God is growing, it's coming, it's advancing more and more. That's the glimpse we get here. That's the faith we need to have also in our day. You're not going to hear much about Jesus Christ from 24 Sussex or the White House or the other political centers of the world. But make no mistake, Jesus Christ is ruling this world, guiding all of these things. God's wisdom is at work in our text, making use of all the sins and foolishness of man so that by the end of the story, foolish King Rehoboam is allowed to escape with his life and return to Jerusalem so that there is yet a son of David on the throne in Jerusalem. There's a lamp burning there yet that Israel can still find their way back if only they'll give up their rebellion. Those lost in darkness can see in Jerusalem, as it were, a candle in the window. And if they want to come home, they can find their way. And it is so, even so, that God in His grace will in time plant that desire to go home in the hearts of the rebellious children of the covenant. We have seen that play out in the book of Acts. We know more than the chronicler could know in his time. We've seen the birth of Jesus. We know Him as the great Son of David, the Messiah, who lives and reigns on David's throne in heaven now, 
And isn't Jesus, King Jesus, in the process of undoing the rebellious disunity among his people by gathering together his Israel, his one people, from all the tribes of Israel, wherever they have been scattered, as well as from all the tribes of the Gentiles all over the earth. We've been seeing something of this in the book of Acts the previous weeks. Jews from their scattered places came to Jerusalem. It's there in Acts 2. Jews who were here and there and everywhere in the Gentile empires of the world, and Jesus had them preach, had the gospel preached to them, and Jesus had His Spirit open their eyes, and they saw Jesus is the King. He is the Son of David, and they came to Him, the light. And do we not catch a glimpse of it still, brothers and sisters? When we come together every Sunday as church, here in this congregation, a little glimpse, and every congregation that's gathering around the world, that is gathering in truth, in faithfulness to the Word, why is it that there are countless people still today, both Gentiles and Jew, 2,000 years later, still attracted to worship a man who died on a Roman cross while identifying himself as the Son of God. Logically, that doesn't make sense that this kind of religion should keep going on, does it? But it does go on because it's real. It's true. King Jesus is alive and He opens our eyes and the eyes of many to see and believe. So, brothers and sisters, let us in our time, let us truly be wise. Let us trust this God of ours who, who guides the flow of history to do His bidding. Let us love Him. Let us trust Him. Let us obey Him, walk with Him in everything, and keep our eyes peeled for the return of the King. He is coming. Amen.